Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. This is the Gospel Feast series uh, for those that need a little meat after the milk. You know, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is as rich and rewarding as you wish to make it. We have some royal feasts available in this series, and I'm told that this one is going to be very special. This one is going to explore an interesting mystery in the scriptures. So Reed, we definitely want to know the answer to the question, why did John the Baptist choose Jesus? Why did Jesus refuse to be made king by the people until the day of his choosing? Read, I can't wait to learn this answer. John the Baptist was infinitely more important than most people realize. The Lord called him the greatest prophet that ever lived, which a lot of people puzzle at and shake their head because they think, gosh, John disappeared as a baby and ate crickets out in the woods and dressed in camel hair and then showed up one day and baptized some people and got his head cut off. How is he the greatest? But what they don't really understand, and I go into a lot of depth on this in 
volume four of the Gospel Feast series, Zechariah and the Teachers of Righteousness. John was actually the official high priest over Israel, and had he been raised the way he should have been, he would have been raised at the temple and he would have been the great, great high priest. And it was the high priest's duty to select the lamb for the nation. All the families had lambs, but the high priest selected the national lamb for the entire family of Israel. So when John picked Jesus to be the national lamb, that is huge. And it does, in a sense, culminate the entire Old Testament with John. You can make the argument that the Old Testament actually ends with John's declaration that Jesus was the Lamb of God. So that's what's really going on. And we'll talk about that some more if we get the opportunity to in a future feast, because it's very important. But that's the gist of it. So when New Testament readers are busy studying that sacred book, they notice that the four Gospels basically tell the same story again and again, but through different perspectives, different events, and kind of a different flow of time. You have to kind of read them all four to get the complete picture. But while each gospel account bears the same witness in its own way, there are a few handful of events that are common to all four gospels, which is proof that these made a lasting impression on all of the apostles. Of these very few commonalities, the strangest is the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It's an odd story, and so let's explore it in detail. As belief in Jesus as the foretold Messiah and true king of the Jews began to take hold, there were several attempts by mobs to lift him on their shoulders and declare him the king. However, every time this happened, something strange occurred. Here is one attempt as recorded in John, chapter 6, verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. Why wouldn't the rightful king of the Jews, the king of kings, not want to be made king? Now hold that thought and note that many months later, Jesus' attitude was entirely different. Not only did he want to be declared king, he orchestrated the event of his declaration. The story goes like this, and it's in Luke 19, and we'll start with verse 29. And it came to pass, when Jesus was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives at Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. Here Jesus is totally in charge of this event. It is obvious that he has made these arrangements ahead of time. Jesus, or someone of his choosing, has told a certain owner of a white colt that when the time came that some men should come for it, the code phrase was to be, because the Lord hath need of him. It is likely that the colt either belonged to Jesus or he had prepaid for its rental. Either way, note how it was prearranged. Now look at verse 32. And they that were sent went their way, and found, even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. Okay, it was known in Judea that the royal mount of the house of David was a white donkey, more specifically, a donkey colt. Verse 36. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh to the city of Jerusalem, 
Even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. This is known universally to Christians as the triumphant entry, but it was not triumphant at all. In Jerusalem, Jesus was rejected as king. The people found no beauty in him that they should desire him. This is another way of saying they were deeply disappointed by the option given and, oh no, not you, anyone but you. Jesus' next reaction is extremely interesting. He broke down in tears. It's in Luke 19, starting at 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hidden from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round about, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even to the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Wow. That is the important thing. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Our clue lies in the use of the word visitation. A visitation is a royal term. Great kings would make visitations to their cities and nobles. While visitizing, they would be treated with great celebration and feasting. A visitation was an official legal visit. We gain further insight into the importance of this day of visitation from another ancient prophet, Zechariah, particularly chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. This day was not just a visitation. It was the visitation, and more. The king was coming to claim his prize, his throne, and his bride, the beautiful Lady Zion. When he was rejected and treated as Isaiah had warned, it was a terrible blow, such that it caused Jesus, even the greatest of all, to weep. Isaiah chapter 53 records this. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah saw it. Now, I have had people say to me that when they read this, that there is no beauty that we should desire him, to say that they thought that Jesus maybe was not handsome. But this is not correct. In Eastern thinking, beauty was connected to duty. Ah, Eastern thinking to the rescue. And while the few eyewitness accounts that we have of Jesus being seen, they said he was actually very handsome. They didn't see him as a Jew doing his duty. And so in the Eastern way of thinking, he was not beautiful because he was not doing his duty. 
He was, in their mind, a rebel, and in some cases they even accused him of being a bastard, which deeply offended him. But anyway, he was not beautiful in the Jewish Eastern sense. This has nothing to do with his physical body. And we actually do talk about the concepts of Eastern beauty versus Western beauty in, I believe it's volume nine, Genesis and the House Divided, but we'll let that sit for now. We do learn from this that there was an exact day appointed, a day in which Jerusalem had to choose the day of visitation. It would be unfair if this day were not foretold and foreknown. God is always fair, and indeed the day was foretold, for the Lord himself held all Judea accountable. He knew the day, and he expected them to know it. We get an additional insight into how difficult this was for the Lord in his mortal form to be rejected, despite knowing it to be the will of the Father, from modern revelation. Note this curious passage in the Doctrine and Covenants in the Lord's own words. This is going to be Doctrine and Covenants section 133, and let's start at verse 46. And it shall be said, Who is this that cometh down from God in heaven with dyed garments, yea, from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his might? And the Lord shall be red in his apparel, and his garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. And so great shall be the glory of his presence that the sun shall hide his face in shame, and the moon shall withhold its light, and the stars shall be hurled from their places. And his voice shall be heard, I have trodden the winepress alone, and have brought judgment upon all people, and none were with me. And I have trampled them in my fury, and I did tread upon them in mine anger, and their blood have I sprinkled upon my garments, and stained all my raiment. For this was the day of vengeance, which was in my heart. Oh, let those words sink in. For this was the day of vengeance, which was in my heart. How hard was it for the Son of Man to be rejected, despised, and treated as nothing by the sinful, fallen children of men? It was infinitely harder than he let on. Shoving all of these things down into his heart, he wept mightily and then rose to do the will of his Father yet again, such is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Before the Christian world stands in judgment of those ancient Jews who found no beauty in the Lord to desire him and rejected him on his royal day, we must not condemn them. We will shortly see that a second holy man, great but not the Son of God, was called and foretold as well. He too was rejected. The Christian world was so deeply disappointed in this second great prophet that history knows this latter-day event as the great disappointment. This is an event we will yet explore. Thanks in a large measure to Sir Robert Anderson of Victorian England, we have a much deeper insight into our Lord's triumphant entry as well as how he intended to restore his loss in a latter-day restoration. Let us summarize Anderson's work as well as add additional commentary from our position 100-plus years beyond him. First, a short background on Anderson and his Victorian world. 21st century men can't really appreciate the havoc Charles Darwin brought upon the public. The godless concepts of natural selection and trans-species evolution were not original with Darwin, but his publication on the origin of species put into global words concepts that had been marginally debated. For the first time, Darwin had successfully coded these theories with an air of science and rhetoric made reason. In a world tired of religious oppression, corrupted popes and priests causing chaos in the name of Christ, something the Lord had foretold, by the way, a way to jettison the pomp and snobbery of secular Christianity was wholeheartedly embraced by the young intellectuals. Indeed, we have already seen in chapter 9 of Daniel how God foresaw these events. 
Indeed, we have already discussed in our gospel feasting here how God foresaw these events. Remember Daniel chapter 11, verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor, with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Darwin's influence would later find real-world application in both communism and democratic socialism, more notoriously known as German Nazism. Today, every schoolchild is taught Darwin's theories as fact, as though Darwin was a great scientist. Darwin's rising greatness was distressing to the older scientists and professors of Victorian England. They could not understand how a basic nobody, a mental nitwit, and an anti-fop, as they would say, could be placed on a status of genius such as men like Isaac Newton. Indeed, there is no comparison between them. And one is reminded of the current trend to make our nations so multicultural that previously unknown and historically unimportant authors, scientists, and artists are elevated to the status of geniuses purely for political reasons. It is the highest form of racial prejudice, to be honest. Truly intellectual scholars at the time trembled at the thought of losing the scientific grounding connected to what is now termed intelligent design. Men such as Sir Robert Anderson wanted to preserve and condense known facts into an accessible form before they were lost or ignored by future generations. Thus, there was a great outpouring of biblically-based knowledge at this time. This is the world into which Sir Robert Anderson's monumental book, The Coming Prince, found itself. Sir Robert Anderson was the second assistant commissioner of crime for the London Metropolitan Police. He was also an intelligence officer. As such, he had a brilliant mind for puzzles and minutiae in solving crime. At Scotland Yard, he was involved in the Jack the Ripper case, which he believed was entirely over-sensationalized. As a Christian, Anderson was closely associated with many of the greatest biblical scholars of his day. He was praised in public on the floor of the House of Commons, and it was said of him, Sir Robert Anderson is one of the men to whom the country of Great Britain, without knowing it, owes a great debt. He wrote 24 books, mostly on Christian topics. He is best known for Human Destiny and for this one, The Coming Prince, which, by the way, is worth reading. Anderson summed up the moral of the book of Daniel thusly when he said, Men have come to regard the earth as their own domain and to resent the thought of divine interference in their affairs. But though monarchs seem to owe their thrones to dynastic claims, the sword or the ballot box, and in their individual capacity their title may rest solely upon these, the power they wield is divinely delegated, for the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomever he will, as Daniel taught us. Anderson would find himself fascinated with the mathematical puzzle outlined by Gabriel in Daniel's ninth chapter. It is so important that we must read it again. Daniel chapter 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. 
and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Anderson would comment on these verses thus, Daniel's prophecy has suffered nothing from the attacks of his assailants, but much at the hands of his friends. No elaborate argument would be necessary to elucidate its meaning were it not for the difficulties raised by Christian expositors. If everything that Christian writers have written on the subject could be wiped out and forgotten, the fulfillment of the vision, so far as it has been in fact fulfilled, would be clear upon the open page of history. It now remains only to recapitulate the conclusions known as fact from history. The scepter of earthly power, which was entrusted to the house of David, was transferred to the Gentiles in the person of Nebuchadnezzar to remain in Gentile hands, quote, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, close quote. The blessings promised to Judah and Jerusalem were postponed until after a period described as 70 weeks, and at the close of the 69th week of this era, the Messiah would be cut off. These 70 weeks represent 70 times 7 prophetic years, of 360 days, to be reckoned from the issuing of an edict for the rebuilding of the city, the street and rampart of Jerusalem. The edict in question was the decree issued by Erexerxes Longimanus in the twelfth year of his reign, authorizing Nehemiah to rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem. The date of Erexerxes' reign can be definitely ascertained by the united voice of secular historians and chronologers. The statement of St. Luke is explicit and unequivocal that our Lord's public ministry began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. It is equally clear that it began shortly before the Passover. The date of it can thus be fixed as being between August 28th AD and April 29th AD. The Passover of the crucifixion, therefore, was in 32 AD, when Christ was betrayed on the night of the Paschal Supper and put to death on the day of the feast. If then the foregoing conclusions be well-founded, we should expect to find that the period intervening between the Edict of Xerxes and the Passion was 483 prophetic years. The Persian Edict, which restored the autonomy of Judah, was issued in the Jewish month of Nisan. It may in fact have been dated the 1st of Nisan, but, no other day being named, the prophetic period must be reckoned according to a practice common with the Jews, from the Jewish New Year's Day. The 70 weeks are therefore to be computed from the 1st of Nisan, 445 B.C. In 445 B.C., the new moon by which the Passover was regulated was the 13th of March at 7 hours 9 minutes a.m., and accordingly the first Nisan may be assigned to the 14th of March. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, an era therefore of sixty-nine weeks or 483 prophetic years reckoned from the 14th of March, 445 B.C., should close with some event to satisfy the words, Unto Messiah the Prince. The date of the Nativity could not possibly have been the termination of the period, for then the 69 weeks must have ended 33 years before the Messiah's death. The Lord's ministry was a preparation for the kingdom leading up to the time when in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures, he should publicly declare himself as the son of David, the king of Israel, and claim the homage of the nation. It was the nation's guilt that the cross and not the throne was the climax of his life on earth. 
No student of the gospel narrative can fail to see that the Lord's last visit to Jerusalem was the crisis of his ministry, the goal towards which it had been directed. His entry into the holy city was to proclaim his messiahship and to receive his doom. And the date of it can be ascertained. In accordance with the Jewish custom, the Lord went up to Jerusalem upon the 8th of Nisan, six days before the Passover. But on the 14th, on which the supper was eaten, fell that year on a Thursday, the 8th was the preceding Friday. He must have spent the Sabbath, therefore, at Bethany, and on the evening of the 9th, after the Sabbath was ended, the supper took place in Martha's house. Upon the following day, the 10th of Nisan, he entered Jerusalem as recorded in the Gospel. The Julian date of that 10th of Nisan was Sunday. Now listen to this very carefully. The Julian date of that 10th of Nisan was Sunday, the 6th of April, 32 AD. Did you catch it? What then was the length of the period intervening between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the public event of Messiah the Prince between the 14th of March, 445 B.C., and the 6th of April, 32 A.D. The interval contained exactly and to the very day 173,880 days, or exactly seven times 69 prophetic years of 36 days, the first 69 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy. Wow. If you're not speechless, you didn't hear it correctly. The triumphant entry occurred on April the 6th, 32 AD. What are the mathematical chances that a non-Latter-day Saint Anglican biblical scholar, mathematician, and enthusiast would, using Isaac Newton's brilliant mind over the course of 173,880 days, starting in the BCs and ending in the ADs, arrive at a date that means absolutely nothing to anyone on earth but the Mormons? How high are the odds? Note Daniel's date given for the official announcement of the Messiah. It was April the 6th. Now note the most important date of Mormonism itself, which we call the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Half a planet away and 2,000 plus years later, Jesus Christ to Joseph Smith, as recorded in the Church's Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 1 says, The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the earth, it being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month, April, and on the sixth day of that month, which is called April. There are just a handful of dates in restored Christianity where strict obedience to a particular date is given. One very rare instance was the Lord's command to young Joseph Smith, who didn't know any of this, that he was to found the church officially on the 6th of April, 1830 A.D. Joseph Smith never knew anything about Robert Anderson. Anderson was not LDS, and he published this book with his findings based on Isaac Newton in the year 1894, 50 years after Joseph Smith was murdered in Frontier, Illinois. So what did the world make of Joseph Smith? Well, this leads us to a little-known part of American history that isn't discussed much today, but it was at its time. It was known as the Great Disappointment. Wow, so we certainly know the importance of April 6th. Uh, it is amazing discovery that this date also had an ancient meaning. That really is incredible. 
you know, we still have more for Daniel and more to study, but how could anything be any more incredible than this? We'll be excited to hear about this uh, soon. So we are unfortunately out of time uh, for this episode. We want to invite everyone to join us at the Gospel Feast together. And until next time, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you.